Hello, everybody, and welcome to You'll Probably Agree. Today, I have my good friend on, uh, former Oscar nominee, David McGowan, from Ravenswood Media, the owner of Ravenswood Media. And uh, we are, we are going to be covering dystopian films exclusively, I think, for like the next four weeks. And uh, to start it off, we're starting off with a double feature of Metropolis and George Lucas's first ever film, he, our first ever feature film of his first three feature films uh, before he kind of fell into the Star Wars zone, THX 1138. Uh, and to start off the uh, conversation, I wanted to talk about what was, from what I found out in my research, the first ever feature length science fiction film of course that could be inaccurate from the imdb notes that i gathered metropolis fritz Lang's 1927 metropolis a movie that was absolutely visually mind-blowing for its time a film that uh had an enormous budget uh, if you adjust it for inflation, this movie was made for 5 million Reichsmarks, and which uh, translates to about $200 million in 2007's budget. So if anyone's good with math, try to figure out for the inflation what that would be for 2020. Um, this was an incredible picture Although, uh, as H.G. Wells said, he thought it was incredibly silly considering the uh, simplicity of it. You know, how the heart just needed to be the mediator between the mind and the hand and that everyone was happy. Uh, There's a a few thoughts I had on it, but I mean, overall, it's still... Uh, on a technical level, uh, absolute monumental achievements. It's a movie that blows me away in that regard. And even for a short film at two and a half hours with its recently, or not recently, but its restored version, I think maybe from 2007, but I could be off. Uh, for two and a half hours and for a silent film, it's... Wow, it's amazing. Did you watch it with the uh, music uh, soundtrack, or did you watch it totally silent? I watched it with the soundtrack this time around. Uh, Was it the the modern soundtrack that they added in the 70s with Freddie Mercury and (laughs) Adam Ant and all that, or was it? um, No, uh, this was uh, the two-and-a-half-hour version uh, by the Criterion channel. So it's pretty much the most pure version you could find. I believe. Yeah, I think they came with uh, a score. Mm-hmm. Usually when the, the movie went out, silent movies went out, especially big blockbusters like this, the theater, like Chicago Theater, downtown in the Loop, would have an orchestra play to the movie. And they'd have uh, cues for when the music would start. They would have actually have a scored pieces. So uh, I was just wondering if, if you went that deeply into it that, you think it was the actual score that they had uh, wanted for the movie? Uh, From what I gathered, there were multiple scores made for the film, but there was an original. And uh, if I were to guess, 
this probably had the score that they intended for the movie. As a matter of fact, the score was so intrinsically used with the film that uh, Lang would often play the score on the set. So then the actors oh, could yeah. correlate their actions to it, which wow. maybe explains how it was so in sync and in tune with everything. Uh, I wanted to get what uh, what did you what do you think of Metropolis? I mean, I know you were a springing twenty one year old man when it first came out. No, no, <laughs> uh, yeah. predates me by a few years, but yeah, uh, no, I'm kidding, but, I'm but that was uh, even back then. It was uh, it never went away really mm -hmm. uh, through my film evolution it, it had always been on the uh you know near the top of my list there are a couple other silent films that i prefer over metropolis but still metropolis is a way cool film but i wanted to um talk about you brought up the budget and like i i hadn't realized it was 200 million dollars in today's um dollars which yeah. i guess is on par with what movies cost now, right? The big blockbusters? Yeah, yeah. Is, is that average or is that a high cost for a, a movie today? Even for today, that's a high cost. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, you got to remember in 1927 when this, or 25, when... This when they movie, started filming it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, would it, that, I think it was called uh, UFA. I forget what the German... Uh, what it stands for in German, but that was mm. the studio in Germany. And Germany in the 20s was, I mean, a sig not just a rival of Hollywood, I, I think in some ways it eclipsed Hollywood, especially yeah. in Europe. Oh, and yeah. uh, it, they, were, they were the dominant force in cinema at that time. Plus they, they had some really talented uh, filmmakers. Mm -hmm. that um that were making just stellar movies everybody was talking about you know uh the cabinet dr caligari and mm -hmm. and uh and uh that one about the the doorman ernst i, I know what yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that they had a film that they had a film that was this incredible blockbuster uh could have been part of their marketing ploy you know, just to bury Hollywood uh, with some, you know, out of control um, movie that would just go global. Yeah. I mean, you just have to keep that in mind that, you know, Germany wasn't a backwater. Germany was like the leading uh, cinema center of the globe at that time. Yeah, they, they, uh, you know, I didn't realize that until you, you until you brought that up just now, because they really did like when it came to their silent films, they were light years ahead of everybody. And this movie really displayed that. I mean, if you think about the visual effects to today, uh, I mean, it, it's like how in they're doing the, it through optical printing. You yes, know, CGI. They're actually doing optical printing. You know, they're having to marry film, several layers of film onto one another. And, you know, yeah. that's a subtractive process. Every time you make a copy of a film, you really degrade it. It's not like digital yeah. media. Yeah. So uh, you had to be really careful and you had to sort of think backwards 
from where you wanted to be uh, and think about, okay, if we're going to do this effect, our original has to be shot and then copied a couple of times. So it's not mismatched. Yeah. Well, the, the, the incredible thing with it is like they didn't have optical printing back then. Uh, what they did was they created a matte effect. It was a large mirror that was placed at an angle to reflect a piece of artwork while live footage footage oh, was projected yeah. onto the reverse to expose the projected footage. So the silvering right. on the back of the mirror had to be scraped off in strategically appropriate places. So uh, what? So if there was like one mistake, it would ruin the whole mirror. Yeah, you're talking about the background shots of like the city with the uh, flying yeah. machines and stuff. I'm talking yeah. about some of those dissolves like where the three groups of people are walking towards the camera just yeah. a, or, you know, just a huge crowd of people coming towards the camera. That was a lap dissolve. They were using, and I think optical printing began then. I mean, it, it optical. They already knew what optical printing was in the twenties. I'm pretty sure, and that that's how they would do those kind of effects. They're a little bit different than the stuff that you're describing of the background of the city and so forth. I can see that working with that mirror process. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, because they, they couldn't, because um, for those who aren't aware of some of the terminology that we're using here, basically with optical printing, and mostly from what you told me, I gathered this, because I was always wondering, like with Star Wars and all that, how do they combine the sort of, the the models that they had with the actual stars in the background because I would still see them using blue screens and uh, and stuff like Space Odyssey. How do they combine all that stuff together? And what they did was, you know, they'd have uh, a, 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 they'd film the model by itself with a blue screen and then they'd have a background that they had filmed of stars and then they would take both of those film layers like you would in Photoshop and you'd combine them together into one concise image, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, with this one in 1925, when they filmed this movie, it took a year and a half, by the way, to film. Long time. Very long time to film the movie. Uh they they uh it it they they had to use this mirror process and basically have everything reflect off of each other and film it in camera. So when you're seeing the establishing shots of the city with the cars, the planes, and the elevated trains moving about, they had to actually use stop motion photography for those, you know, and they modeled the cars off of the newest taxi cabs driving the streets of Berlin. It took them months to build the city model and several days to film the few short sequences that they would have, you know, of some of the cities. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, the lab ruined the first few shots. So the backgrounds of the shot had been dimly lit to create a greater sense of depth. But the head of the lab, who developed the film himself, decided that was a mistake and lighted the backgrounds. Thereby, he destroyed the sense of forced perspective uh, in the film. So, I mean, this was a strenuous process, to say the least.
Yeah, and uh, well worth it because uh, it's it's a, a stellar visual experience. However, there's one shot that I just always bothers me whenever I see the movie, mm. and it's uh, when uh, uh, Brigitte Helm is put down on that table. And by the way, she was hot. Well. Yes, uh, by today, I would say she's a very attractive woman. Yeah. Now, easy, David. Okay, this is 2020. All right. <laughs> and um, she's lying on that table, and then they, they do a lap dissolve of her to the robot face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, uh, they, they didn't choose her eyes as the anchor point. And mm -hmm. I don't know why that happened, because when it, when it dissolves, the robot's eyes are above where her eyes were. Do you, uh, do you know what the scene I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, where they where they basically where they would transfer her conscious her, uh, into right. the into the into the uh, android. Who, by the way, for all you Star Wars nerds out there, C3PO's design was based on. Oh, that's obvious. Yeah. The uh, robot Hell. H E L, you know, I don't know what how it was pronounced in Germany, but I know they they gave it a different name in the um, English speaking versions originally because it sounded like hell. Uh, but uh, yes, they they designed uh, his look uh, off of the robot from Hell, uh, played by uh, Brigitte or is it Bridget? Uh, <laughs> I, I believe in Altdeutsch it would be Brigitte. Yeah, uh, Brigitte Helm, uh, who and her, that, her real name was like Schnittles Fossil Helm, and they they <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I can see why that is. Yes, I mean, she played she was only 18 when she uh started filming. People looked a lot older back then, I don't know why, maybe yeah. it was the hairstyle. Maybe it was the clothing choice, or maybe it was just because the lack of health care that they had back then. Uh, yeah, but she played Maria, who's sort of this angelic figure. She tells the story, because there's a lot of biblical references in the film. She tells the story of the Tower of Babylon to sort of like all the workers who are working underground from the large towering city and she's inspiring hope you know and optimism to these people right. when they have none and of course the uh the 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 ceo the the ruler of metropolis who who rules above all of them uh uh john fredrickson uh he uh finds out about i think uh maria's actions and um it's it's the mad scientist in the film uh i, I can't remember his name at the top of my head rotwang that was it right right yeah yeah and uh rotwang he had a wife that uh resembled uh maria uh and also, uh, he designed the robot off of her, and he wanted to use this robot to manipulate the people to destroy their infrastructure. 
and basically have them rule over them. Now, honestly, that's where I got a little lost in the story. I didn't quite understand Rot Wang's motivation, nor did I understand uh, Fredrickson's motivation. Um, it was a little fuzzy to me. Uh, did, do you understand it at all? No, you kind of hit it. They were trying to, to discredit uh, uh, Brigitte's character, mm -hmm. the real character, from her proselytizing underground yeah. and uh, sent out her doppelganger to, uh, to stir up trouble, you know, and, uh, and I got to say this, I mean, Brigitte was a, uh, she's a beautiful actress. Yeah. And uh, when I said she was hot, yeah. what I was really referring to was when she was playing the doppelganger. <laughs> right. That's when, man, I mean, when she's like playing the good girl, she's okay. I mean, she's a pretty actress and all that. But when yeah. she, they let her loose as that doppelganger that's stirring up trouble and make and doing those wild dances. That's mm. when, like, whoa. And this, she had that crazy look in her eyes, uh, too. Yeah, one eye kind of closed. Yeah. And the other one fully open. Yeah. Very sexy. Uh, it looked like a, she looked like a Klimt uh, portrait. Yeah. Just yeah. beautiful and hot. Yeah, she 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 really encompasses the sense of pure evil. Like she was just enjoying the 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 hate that she was putting on everyone. Hate and, and decadence. Yes, yes. Because you know, really, if you think about it, that's um, a reflection. This is like what seven years before uh, Hitler came to power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, this stuff is burbling in the public and. Uh, you know, art movies is taking advantage of it and, and it, it's finding a home in the collective consciousness of cinema. Yeah. And it's funny because years later, Goebbels and Hitler loved this film. And they uh, actually, although Fritz Lang himself was Jewish, they sort of gave him a pass and they wanted him to make movies for them. And at that moment, Lang jumped in a plane, headed to Paris, or I don't know if they, uh, uh, however he got to Paris back then. And uh, once he, and he fled to Paris and then he fled to the United States because he didn't want to make movies for them. And his wife at the time, they divorced a year later since then. She was a staunch reporter, uh, a supporter of the Nazi party and she uh, stuck around in Germany with the Nazis. So well, uh, uh, Brigitte, there's a lot too, to it. Brigitte was uh, well-liked, I think, by Himmler and by uh, Hitler himself. Mm. And uh, she wasn't pro-Nazi at all. I mean, mm. she was, from what I've read, she was kind of disgusted with it. But evidently, she had a drinking problem. And she got into some accidents, and I think in one of them, she killed someone during oh. a uh, yeah, drunk driving accident. And uh, Hitler made the manslaughter charge go away. Yeah, that's a very tricky situation. Yeah. I don't know but what I would... She fled in 35. She came to Hollywood. Had four kids with a new husband. And, but she, she never gave interviews after she came to uh, the States. There was an interview that she gave years later where she basically uh, talked about what the process was like making that film. 
And although she admitted that it was an incredible picture, she said the process of it oh, was right. absolutely Yeah, they put her through the ruling. ringer. Yeah. yeah. Especially uh, to, the time she had to be in the, the robot outfit. Yes. Yeah. She had cuts and bruises all over her. They molded the out, out, outfit off of her body, so it was not a stunt woman in there. Uh, to quote her, there was an interview where she said the night shoots lasted three weeks. And even if they did lead to the greatest dramatic moments, even if we did follow Fritz Lang's directions as though in a trance, enthusiastic and enraptured at the same time, I can't forget the incredible strain they put us under. That work wasn't easy. And the authenticity in the portrayal ended up testing our nerves now and then. For instance, it wasn't fun at all when uh, fun at all when Grote drags me by the hair. Uh, that's the mad scientist, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, to have me burned at the stake. Oh, no, that wasn't the mad scientist. That was somebody else. Uh, I think that was the man who was leading the angry mob of workers. And, and uh, this is when this is the robot form of herself. Once I even fainted during the transformation scene, Maria as the android is clamped in a kind of wooden augment. And because the shot took so long, I didn't get enough air. Now that's where they burned her at the stake. And, she, and there's a crowd of thousands cheering for her to die. And she's, you know, laughing and, ah, you know, while they're burning her android self, and I guess in real life she she passed out in that scene. I mean, she passed out. She got cuts and bruises. There's a scene where uh, the mad scientist is chasing her up this huge building, and I guess it was actually a huge set. And she had to jump on a rope, and she made it on the first take, but she was so bruised up and battered from it, she fled this the set just just in tears. Uh, it was it was just a horrible process. Fritz Lang would shoot so much that like the crew had to make him stop shooting. You yeah. know, I think that he like topped Kubrick in terms of shooting. Uh, the shoot lasted 17 months. It was 310 shooting days and 60 shooting nights, and it was finally completed by October 30th, 1926. Uh. By the time the film's shooting budget left at 5.3 million Reichmarks, or over three and a half times the original budget, the producer uh, actually was fired during the production. So this was, I can't, I couldn't even imagine what it was like to film that movie. I mean, they used 25,000 extras. Uh, there's a group of little starving children in the movie who actually were little starving children. I think they grabbed like 4,000 of them. There, the, 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 uh, the, the workers, they grabbed a few thousand of those. I mean, this movie Although had, he paid really yeah. close attention to the close-ups of the workers. If you look at some of those mm -hmm. faces, they're very distinctive. You know, yeah. like uh, big mugs, big jaws, big ears. Yeah. And they were also... So he, he, uh, he had... He would do grandiose scenes, but Fritz Lang paid a lot of attention to detail. He did. He did. I mean, this is an incredibly detail-oriented film. Um, 
and can yeah, you, um, can you name some Fritz Lang uh, American Fritz Lang movies? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> not the time I had. I'm still uh, on my path of researching all his films. The other, the only other Fritz Lang movie I saw was M. Which, uh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Of. Peter Lorre. Yeah, uh, that was Peter Lorre's claim to fame. But that uh, was produced in Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And there was there was an English dubbed version. That was his first speaking film. M is fantastic. Uh, that I watched it twice in a row after I, uh, you know, I, I saw it once and I'm like, okay, I gotta watch this again. Uh, that that was an incredibly uh sort of taboo film. You know, you're talking about a murderer of children, you know, and 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 a town who basically he seemed to have a reoccurring theme between this and them of angry mobs uh, sort of fighting against the system, you know, a social justice angle, which unfortunately Goebbels really liked that social justice angle and took it completely the wrong way. I think maybe Goebbels and Hitler liked the film because in the end, the big corporate guy doesn't get it in the end, but instead everybody's just kind of miraculously friends, which is where the movie was a little clumsy to me, where, you know, all of a sudden uh, the main character of the movie, Fred Fredrickson's son, John, uh, basically joins the hand of the angry migrant worker and his father, who right. is the, the, the leader of Metropolis, and Maria says, join hands together. You're the median. And then they do, and everyone's happy. Yay. And it's like, right. That's why it was That's kind of it? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, like, they, they built it up to this big thing. And that, that's why the, I mean, the, the movie fails at, on that level because they, they had built it up to this, this, this ending that they could not sustain you know it's like they had to just wrap it up it was <laughs> the, the story was just going off and off and off and then finally they come up with this kind of hackneyed ending and and it, it, it leaves you with the feeling that uh the filmmaker wasn't um wasn't criticizing society that it was all just a big misunderstanding and that you know yeah. once people started talking to each other and regarding one another, then, you know, everything got well again, which is decidedly a different message than THX 1138. Yeah, yeah, everything just seemed to kind of magically work out. It felt like a very Hollywood ending, you know? Like, hey, we're all right, you know? It's it's a bit like that unearned hog that Stanley Tucci gives Mark Wahlberg at the end of Transformers 4. My God, I was able to link Metropolis with a Michael Bay movie. Uh. How about that? But you know what? I mean, I think a lot of the messages of people who are being, I think the beginning of the movie, the, the whole idea that the CEO wanted to basically discourage, I don't know, why did he want to discourage these workers and tear them apart if they were subservient and operating a system? Like, that's- Well, they weren't. Uh, she was giving them, she was telling them this, the gospel, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, and, and giving them hope of something more out of life. And that the, the Metropolis guy saw that as a threat to their sort of numbed, uh, emotionalist, uh, drudge work. Yeah. So, uh, 
So yeah, once they started to see that there were alternatives, then they started to rebel and started to uh, you know foment discord. So uh, that's th that was the idea. And you got to remember, at this time in the twenties, this is just when communism had emerged and before uh, it had become like this comic book uh, villain in the uh, the West. It was something that was, you know, taken seriously. Like, hey, here's a new idea, and it's it's working in, you know, the decadent Russian regime, which up until that point had been looked on as a uh, sort of, a, you know, a despotic, uh, barbarian society. And here, communism came in, and things were going great. And the movie is kind of hinting at that. And I think that uh, was threatening to uh, particularly some of the uh, the uh, right wing forces in Germany at the time. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, from what I understood, it did sort of have a pro communistic message to it. Uh, so, but again, we had to view everything from these old. I mean, this movie is nineteen twenty seven. My God, how many years ago was that? Now, you know, a long time. Yeah, I don't want to do math. Um, 93 years. Yeah, okay, there we go. 93 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But that's very different than THX 1138, which is much more of a, like, I mean, the way I brought it, took it out was, this is this was the end result of a unharnessed capitalism. Yes. That, that the systems had overcome the components. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was more important what was being produced than who the producers were. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion, love. Yesterday you watched THX and this is your first time seeing it. Right. Uh, what, what did you think of it? I, I'm very curious because it's an extreme. Well, number one, I think that uh, it couldn't have been, it would never have survived, and Lucas probably would not have become who he is today if they had not starred Robert Duvall in the uh, in the titular role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he, he kind of reminded me of Kier Dulé in um, in uh, Odyssey two uh, two thousand. Yes. Yeah. That sort of uh, dispassionate, yet um, intense, inward acting. Hmm. You know, he, De Niro, uh, not De Niro, uh, Duvall, yeah. had that kind of, in, that smoldering look in his eyes, hmm. yet he was very subdued physically. Yeah. And everyone in that society was. Uh THX 1138, if, if no one has ever seen it uh, or isn't aware of it, this, you know, it's very, you wouldn't expect George Lucas to direct this movie because he's done Star Wars and American Graffiti and sort of these happy films, right? And this movie is an absolutely dreary, dystopian, hopeless kind of film. And it's as the sound designer, Walter Murch, called it a movie from the future rather than about the future. 
So you're no, kind of... no, that, that's the other thing that struck me about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, you know, they, they had no alternative, but it's kind of yeah. funny to watch the movie. Yeah. Uh, from this, from our perspective today, and they've got all these, uh, you know, video scopes, yeah. and, uh, red buttons, you know, and, and, and switches and stuff like that. It's like all that stuff is gone, you know. It's all it predated, like, yeah. Right. It, but it's kind of quaint, you know, to see it. And you buy it. I mean, even if yeah. you're, you're watching it today, you kind of buy, all right, that's the way things work. Like they actually were going into um, racks of uh, computer tape yeah you're probably too young you don't remember but like in the 70s especially banks that had to keep records they would store all their computer data that would transactions or whatever happened during the day any given day mm. on this reel almost like a reel to reel of um of magnetic tape and then they mm. take that to a a safe vault and i i remember i saw one like in the late 80s just mm. underground vault just went on cavernous went on and on and on and the guy even at that time was telling me this is not sustainable we gotta find some other medium oh my god to store stuff on because we there's not enough you know is that when they had those big reels that they were grabbing that that uh had all that tape in it like i don't know what it was but they had these large circular yeah. sort of yeah, things you mean in like the movie. yeah that's yeah. what i'm referencing yeah yeah it, it was, the, the tape itself was probably like uh maybe uh, a half an inch wide or a quarter inch wide uh but the reel it was on was like maybe 16 inches in diameter yeah yeah uh it, it's uh yeah the the, the technology they use is definitely outdated i mean we have to remember this movie came out i think like in 1971 or something like that yeah. and uh this uh, this movie was based on george lucas's short that he made when he was in usc called thx 1138 uh did you see or earthbound uh yes uh eb uh was his, uh, earthborn yeah i own the dvd so they have the uh the short it's, uh, feature length uh, the short that it was based on was a short. Uh, so oh, yeah. how long was it? It's like 15 minutes. Oh, okay. Is it yeah. good? Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, for its time. Yeah. I mean, today it looks real kind of cheesy and hokey and stuff like that. Cause you know, it's basically just this guy running around as people are kind of having this random radio chatter and he's kind of like, you can tell they filled it like a parking lot or something like that. And uh, really what was incredible was the sound design in it. You know, much like the movie itself, Walt Walter Murch's sound design is like a film in and of itself. Actually, on the DVD, there's this whole track where it's a sound effects only track. And Walter Murch sort of chimes in now and then and sort of explains how he did everything. Oh, cool. Because everything was intentionally made to be obscure. So you didn't understand a lot of the dialect that the people are saying in the film, you know. So oh, kind of like that a lot was of, cool. Like in the background, yeah. you're hearing them talk like, okay, what about, like, especially when Robert uh, uh, Duvall is uh, in that white area mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. he's just like laying on the ground and you're seeing him on video screens and the two voices, you never see the guys, are saying, yeah. hey, uh, what's this I hear about this code 
for this. Well, you got to make sure you don't go over 4.6. And as they're talking this sort of banal code <laughs> talk, they're torturing Robert Duvall. You know, you see him like putting his arm up and yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, you think of, um, of uh, the, um, the banality of evil, you know, who was that mm. woman? Uh, who's the woman that, that came up with that? The woman out of Nazi Germany? Oh, are you talking, the, the one who made the movies? The, no, no, the- not made the movies. Uh, she, she was, um, she was the girlfriend of um, Hitler. Heidegger. Uh, I, I don't know honestly uh, who okay. that is. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, banality of evil. And then the the other clue that I thought was really a uh, a blunt statement coming from the movie yeah. was this idea of you know capitalism run amok is that as they're chasing uh, Robert Duvall. Yeah. There's this subtext or this this. It comes in real subtle, but it's clear, you know, once chasing him uh, goes over what their uh, their budget allows, yeah, they'll let him go. And so while he's climbing up that smokestack or whatever it is, yeah, uh, cops behind him say, you know, hey, we got to go back and we, we're over, you know, 6% over budget. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, I never knew that they stopped chasing him because they ran out of budget until someone told me when I was watching it for like a millionth time in high school. Uh, this is right, like, yeah, they ran out of budget. Kind of I'm subtle, like, really? But it's there. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a that's that's giving you a clue as to the filmmakers saying that this is a society now that's just based on uh, financial concerns. You know that people no longer matter. It's the system itself, and the metric on whether the system is working or not is uh, budgetary. You know, how much are you spending? And if it's under budget, then the system's working well. If it's over budget, then, you know, we got to stop whatever we're doing and go back. Yeah. I mean, this movie, it's sort of like a reminder of, hey, this is what's going to happen if we're subservient for too long. And we just let the system take over because in the end, everything is revolved around consumerism where they say, buy, buy more now, buy and be happy, you know? So as long as you buy things and as long as you're happy, no, are they, are they drug you up enough? Because in this film, everyone is constantly told to take their medication and to not worry about anything Anytime they opened up the medicine cabinet, a voice would say, hi, how are you feeling? Yeah. What's wrong? What's wrong? And yeah. Can't, I mean, doesn't it, does it strike anybody that, you know, like Siri, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Siri or what's the, uh, what's the one on uh, Microsoft? Uh, this or yeah, yeah. Any of those speaking sort of things that you talk to it and you and you can Google something, right? You know, and if you're and if oh, you're, my you're... phone, my phone talks to me when I don't even expect it to. It's like all of a sudden it's yeah. talking to me. It's like, whoa, where is this coming from? Yeah, like you ever had that thing where you sound where you say something that sounds something like "Hey Siri," and then it'll be like "Uh huh," and you're like, "Wait, what? I didn't say Hey Siri," right? And then it'll be like, 
I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Like, how are you feeling today? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I mean, just just to go back to, uh, well, we won't mention it once, but 2001, mm. when when uh, Kirle is is uh, coming to take out Hal's memory, and yeah. Hal knows it, and he's he's saying. Dave, I can tell you're upset. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you take a stress pill? Take a stress and things sings over. Yeah, we can talk this out. Yeah. It's like, oh, now you want to talk it out after you murdered my entire crew. <laughs> right. Okay. But, but the sure. point is, is that these are computers talking to us. People 50, 60, 70, nearly 100 years ago are saying, are projecting forward saying, Hey, people of the future, this is what we're afraid of as we step into this robotic <clears throat> computer era. Yeah. And we watch these movies and we go, oh, that's creepy. You know how the medicine cabinet was talking to him. But we don't feel creeped out when Siri says, you know, or Alexis or whatever it is, is running our house or our phone. Or mm -hmm. That's why I don't have an Amazon Alexa. Because, like, it, it can listen into what you're saying. As a matter of fact, there's this video I saw way back where this guy, he would just say, like, I wouldn't have my microphone on. I wouldn't have my phone on. I would just mention cat food or whatever. And if I mentioned it enough, it would pop up on Facebook's right. ad feed. You right. know? And, yeah. And, yeah. and people people don't get it. You know, people, people that they're not – like, hey, uh, this is getting kind of weird, you know? Yeah. Is somebody talking to Facebook? Yeah. Maybe we should go back to paper for a little bit, you know? Yeah. Just, I mean, I'm not saying abandon computers, but maybe use them a little less. And now with this pandemic, we're yeah. using the we're using the internet right now to talk to each other. And yeah, everything and, we're and saying is, is being monitored. I'm sure THX 1138 and Metropolis will pop up on my ad feeds to purchase them, you know, or right. rewatch them again. Yeah. So in it, the difference is, is that in Metropolis, yeah, it's like the free market is, is still being controlled by a human being mm -hmm. like freighter's dad, you yeah. know, the, 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 the magnet and you can appeal to his humanity to yeah. stop uh, whatever the system had been doing. But by the time you come to THX 1138, the system has completely suppressed all humanity. The system itself has become the, uh, it, it's as if uh, the organic human has now become the system. And there's no more appealing to humanity because the human side of it has died. Yeah, uh, they and they used sort of the robot to manipulate everyone's thoughts in Metropolis. And I think like THX 1138 in an alternate universe would take place years after Metropolis, after that whole medium bullshit didn't work out, you know. <laughs> Listen to this. I mean, it just occurred to me, you're absolutely yeah. right, that uh, the, what they were doing in Metropolis, the, the core of the story was to create a doppelganger yeah, that would act like this woman to discredit her, and we've mm -hmm. already seen this with what's called today. It's called deep fakes. Mm. They're actually able to use some sort of CGI technology to build a face 
and animated that yeah. looks just like a real human being. Yeah. And I make mean, them talk and make them uh, walk. And so you could actually take, we could take Mike Crowley yeah. and put him into a porn movie. Yeah, and you it, could. You, you'd spend the rest of your life trying to, to, to try to talk your way out of it. And here- Or would I? Yeah, <laughs> or into it maybe. But uh, I really am that big, I swear. Yeah, right. But uh, but the, the point being here is that Metropolis had already uh, predicted this deep fake idea with the doppelganger, which is kind of incredible. 93 years ago, yeah. they saw the danger of AI before there was AI. Yeah. And and the and the more we're locked inside, the more we rely on this technology. And I know I'm not gonna abandon technology. Jesus, I'm gonna be using it all freaking day today. You know, I'm gonna. Oh, be well, here's another thing yeah. is that um that I wanted to bring up because we're yeah. talking about abandoning technology. Yeah. THX eleven thirty eight had definite rips from Brave New World, all those mm. Huxley's book. And because uh, I think, I, I mean, it's been a while since I've read it, but I remember at the end that the main character uh, escapes from the Brave New World by going up a tube and, and walking out into the wilderness. I kind of remember mm. that. Maybe I'm wrong, but. I haven't it, seen it. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> but, but there were, there, there, uh, THX 1138 had riffs on that because in Brave New World, there were two worlds. One was uh, the city where everybody lived, but they were, they were, uh, you know, uh, highly controlled. I think even, uh, even with sex. I, um, mm. And, uh, but there was this other outer world, which was in the wilderness where people lived like those creatures in uh, the, uh, the parking lot. You remember? Yeah. That? They the shell dwellers. Shell dwellers, yeah. Yeah. Only they're inside the city. But in Brave New World, the the people were on the outside of the city. And I think the main character's mother and father had made a decision. They were in love in the the city world mm. and uh, were being persecuted. So they went to the out country, and that's where they had the baby who became the main character. So there's a lot of Brave New World in THX 1138. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder in that movie what happens when THX crawls out of that tunnel into society. Does he just die out in the middle of the desert where there's nobody? Apparently, there was some alternate ending they planned where he was going to see a populated world outside of the tunnel, you know. But we don't – or the shell, as they called it, that they lived in. Um it would have been interesting, but we don't need a sequel. You know, we don't need to plan it. No, no, it, no, it was, yeah, it yeah. was great the way it ended. That was really cool. It really yeah. leaves you uh, thinking. Yeah. But also, um, it, it, it also, those shell dwellers and Brave mm. New World. Brave New World, I think, was written about 20 years after um, The Time Machine, H.G. Mm. Wells. Mm -hmm. And H.G. Wells, his dystopian future in involved two races of people, the Eloy and the Murdochs. Mm. Um, 
and the Murdochs lived underground and were these sort of kind of ugly troll-like creatures that ran the machines underground. And then the Eloi were these elite wispy people that lived on the, on the surface. And every now and then the Murdochs would take a Eloi and eat it or something like that. It's, oh. it's the idea that humanity would split into two races based on class or capitalism. Uh, it began with H.G. Wells and you're seeing it kind of evolve into movies like THX 1138. Yeah. And in THX, like, it seems like everybody lived in the same class. We don't know who's making the money or who's controlling everything. Oh, right. But the fascinating thing about that movie is that didn't matter. No. It was just about the people who lived there. It didn't yeah. get involved in the politics. And, and like I said, the humanity part of it was gone. Yeah. There was no rich person. There was no poor people necessarily. It, yeah. Everything was the system. The system then became the thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's no antagonist with a face other than maybe uh, uh, Donald Pleasant's uh, SEN character, you right. know. And if, you, if you're trying to interpret what the names mean, THX, sex is like sex, you know, uh, L-U-H, law is love. And S-E-N, sen, sin, you know. So you have sex, love, and sin sort of mixed together oh that's cool i never thought about that yeah yeah and uh you know the movie's sort of viewed like an artifact from the future where it is what it is you don't it doesn't tell you how to feel it doesn't judge a character a certain way you just sort of view it and interpret it for yourself and much like japanese cinema where you just sort of see these cultural traditions played out you mostly just view everything as it is, and it's up for to the viewer to interpret what it means. Because George Lucas was a big proponent of not explaining anything, just kind of having it presented in front of you. Even Star- I don't know. I mean, I think his Star Wars movies, that's all they're doing is explaining it. Well, the prequels kind of did, but even those, they never really told you what everything means. I don't know. I... Inception explains everything. Oh, I talked about Inception with uh, fellow. What's critic. Inception? Oh, that's a newer movie from Christopher Nolan. <laughs> that well, newer, it came out ten years ago, but uh, <laughs> newer movie. <laughs> I mean, that's how old I am now. It's like to me, right. ten years ago wasn't that long ago, uh, <laughs> but. One last um, thing, though, I wanted to, before we go, uh, I just want to let everybody know, whoever's listening to this, that there's, um, there was a song from the 60s by uh, Zager and Evans, Mm. and it's called, uh, you know, uh, in the year 2525, you know, and (laughs) do you know that song? Yeah. Yeah, and somebody cut Metropolis, the movie Metropolis, to that song, and they, they just nailed it. Yeah, you know, mm. if anybody's sort of, interested, try to look up Zagger Nevin's uh, "In the Year" and uh, "Metropolis," and uh, it's it's like a three minute video. They they did a really good job. It's a bit like when you uh, listen to "Dark Side of the Moon." And you watch it with uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. You watch it with The Wizard of Oz. It syncs up perfectly. Oh, I never heard that. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a look. Is there a YouTube on it? 
Oh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> but yes, uh, two movies about a society that collapses, you know, and in a way, I guess THX could sort of be a sequel to Metropolis in a way. Uh, but yeah, watch the behind the scenes stuff on THX as well. It's incredible to see. I mean, that movie's much more in tune with sort of George Lucas's psychosis because he's kind of a very negative kind of person in real life. And that movie reflects more of it. And he kind of got stuck in the light, fluffy realm with Star Wars, you know, because it was made for 12 year olds. Although in Revenge of the Sith, they murder little kids and burn a man half alive. You know, and a bunch of kids are killed in the Clone Wars. It's still good. something essentially good. <laughs> Fuck them. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, man, you are busting me on language and then you say something like that. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but <laughs> you see, uh, but it's still kind of made for kids. The THX isn't. It's a George, move, George Lucas film with nudity. All right. That gives you an idea of what it's like. Uh, so... Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking oh, about Mike. movies. Yeah, I think uh, you guys should really check these out. A good history lesson in film. Uh, we'll see what the next dystopian films are. Maybe we'll do a little bit of Night of the Living Dead and 28 Days Later. And see, because... Oh, yeah, that's a good zombie one. Zombie apocalypse, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much. Uh, remember to uh, check out ravenswoodmedia.com where you can check out all David McGowan's stuff or Google the movie Mark of the Maker. His, uh, what was it, 1991 film nominated for an Oscar in 92. Short documentary film about how people made paper without having to kill trees. It's possible, folks. (laughs) Okay? All right. All right, Um, thanks, Mike. Check out, you'll probably agree at why... Thanks a lot, folks. Bye-bye.